What is up? Drax Project is our guest this week. And once again, I'm your host, Zach of the Auxoro Podcast, where we speak with music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, and other interesting humans to explore the story beyond the surface. For those of you who are not familiar with Drax Project, shame on you. Just kidding. But now you have no excuse not to know who these guys are, and for good reason, because they'll only be getting bigger. In a few short years, Drax Project went from busking on the streets of Wellington, New Zealand, to signing a major label deal with 300 Entertainment. They actually hung up accidentally on Kevin Lyles, the CEO of 300 Entertainment, the first time they got on a call from him. What a power move. The first time I get on a call from a major podcasting network, I'm going to hang up on their asses and demand a max contract. Stay tuned to see how that works out for me. Last year, Drax Project released the smash hit Woke Up Late, which Haley Steinfeld then hopped on. It currently has nearly 50 million hits on Spotify. The group then made a music video for Woke Up Late featuring YouTube star Liza Koshy, and they absolutely killed it. A couple of months ago, I had the pleasure of seeing Drax Project live at Soho House in NYC and was blown away. When they whipped out the saxophone, I knew I had to have them on the podcast. On this episode, Matt and Sam of Drax Project talk how the band came to be, opening for Ed Sheeran, painting houses, and how they are inspired by the 1975. For some reason... The connection was a bit spotty at certain points in the podcast. I realize that it's not the best audio quality which you're used to, which can be frustrating as a listener, but it is top quality conversation. So thank you for sticking with us for this episode. We love you. Without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Drax Project. And I know that's all right. a good place to start would be the name Drax Project. And I've heard you guys say in pretty much every single interview that it comes from the combination of the drums and the saxophone with Matt and Sean when you first started playing. So Drax Project, which made me think of other possible combinations that could have happened (laughs) if you played different instruments. So for example... If, if Sean played a flute, it would have been the Droot Project. <laughs> that would have failed instantly. Yeah. It w- it, you could have had the Drumpet Project, Drums and Trumpet. What about cool. What about if someone played bassoon? The <laughs> the Droon? The oh. Droon Project? That that actually sounds kind of cool. The Drello? The Drello Project? Drassoon. <laughs> that sounds like a Pokemon character or something my two favorites that I thought of, this is how I prepare for interviews. I just look at the name of the band. I try to find alternative names. This is going to be the entire hour. Yeah, that's brilliant. So the two, the two, my two favorites were the Drello Project, no. Trump's and Cello, and the Drylophone. Well, it could have been anything, really. Luckily... It kind of worked. <laughs> no, yeah, it does. I think I think Drax is the best 
the best combination. It's funny because we were kind of put on the spot with making that band name because people were putting videos. filming us, yeah, and trying to like, where do we? I want to upload this to YouTube. Where do I? What do I call you guys? So we had to kind of make a name quickly. And I remember it was it was Sean. Sean's mum and myself and like a little group chat. <laughs> oh man, we need to get a band name ASAP. What do we do? And we would have gone through a couple of really bad ones. And then out of nowhere, I think it was Sean's mum. Yeah. Drums plus sax equals Drax. And then we just, we thought, yeah, that's all right. Like, well, that, that, that's fine for now. <laughs> like, yeah. Shout out Sean's mom. Yeah, big time. Same the day. Thanks, they, Lisa. They were, I wasn't even in the band and Sean had messaged me being like, Bro, do you have any names for a band? In hindsight, I could have completely changed the uh, the trajectory. Yeah, of you know. everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, everything worked out for a reason. Luckily, yeah. luckily, it stuck. It sounds like you and Sean's mom got in a a huddle, like a like a halftime at a football game, and just convened and tried to figure out the name. And luckily. It sounds sexy. It sounds like a good name. I'm not going to lie. The Drax Project. It's fire. Thank you, bro. So how did both of you guys grow up, Matt and Sam? Because I know you ended up working together after going to school in the same area, but how did you guys first grow up around there? I'm actually not from Wellington. I'm, I'm from okay. a city called New Plymouth, which is about like a five-hour drive north on the West Coast. And I grew up there, which went to high school there, played music like all through primary school and high school pretty much as well. Obviously did other stuff, but that was like one of the big things that I did. And then I started doing high school jazz competitions and stuff like that and like workshops, which are run by um, the university in Wellington. So that was kind of the start of my connection to Wellington. And that was like, I met Sean really briefly through doing those when I was about 16. And Matt had actually also kind of like, you met Sean pretty pretty similar time through doing other high school jazz stuff. Yeah, Wellington's kind of like, there's a good jazz hub in Wellington. A lot of uh, jazz musicians kind of congregate down to Wellington. There's a good jazz school there. Mm-hmm. And through the jazz school, as Sam said, they run like weekend jazz programs and other kind of like school holiday programs, kind of preparing people for the jazz, like full-on jazz course once you finish high school and get into uni. So, yeah, um, for me, I grew up in Wellington. My mum was quite musical. Um, She kind of forced me kind of to get drum lessons at age probably 11 and um, like, grew up through the church. I was playing in church every week and learning how to kind of play like in that way. And then yeah, met Sean at these week- weekend jazz programs. And I kind of yeah, I always knew I was going to go to jazz school because my drum tutor, my drum tutor Johnny Wilson, did exactly that. And um, he kind of guided me through the basically the whole curriculum before I even got there. I, I kind of knew what was gonna gonna happen. So um, yeah, he was really good for preparing me for that. But yeah, once we got to jazz school, we kind of, what's the word when we... We, we were playing like heaps of music, obviously. When you're, so like when you're studying something at university. You're it's like, like high, a high volume of different yeah. types of jazz and learning techniques and stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. So like 
that style and just music in general was like completely our lives at that point in time. Obviously, it still is, but in a very different way. What type of mindset or techniques are you most grateful to take away from jazz school? Because you are you are in a different vein now with more of the the more pop style tracks that are melodic focused, but there are definitely jazz and other R&B, hip-hop elements. It's a nice blend of instrumentation and electronic production. What are, what are the biggest takeaways from the jazz-style education? I think that like one of the biggest things that we've taken away is being or being able to like speak the language of modern music um, in the sense of if somebody's trying to do something and... Like writing if, we're, if we're writing a song, you know, and somebody's playing something... And someone's like, "Oh, what's that chord?" We can explain what that is, and it doesn't. Rather than like being, rather than saying, "Oh, that's not quite right," or yeah, that yeah. Can, something else, we could be like, "Can you try this exact thing that we yeah. know will sound good?" Because we've had like the background theoretical training. So, like in some ways, that's good. In some ways, we have to like in some situations, we have to try and forget that that sort of knowledge because sometimes what is supposed to sound good isn't like the only thing that can sound good. Yeah, music is like so. yeah, we've realized it's a lot to do with feeling and like does it feel good? Sometimes the rules that we've learned at, at jazz school sometimes can get in the way of just feeling that something is good, even though it's not technically correct. Yeah. So we kind of over time I wouldn't say we've like shaken that mindset off, but we've um definitely had to go through a lot of bad songs to get to some half decent ones. That reminds me of some conversations I've had in the past with some other duos or groups like yourselves, where obviously the the technical aspects come into play and, and help tremendously throughout the development. But sometimes there's that guy or girl in the group that just has zero technical training that can just be an ear and say if something sounds good. So it's a balance between knowing why something sounds the way it does and how it sounds the way it does. And someone in the group that, or multiple people in the group that can just lend an ear with zero training and be able to give their judgment. Yeah. That's definitely, that's definitely a thing. And, and it's funny, we test, like I say, we test, we show our music willingly to um, like a bunch of friends and people who we work with and like even our girlfriends because like it's it's interesting to have those different perspectives and to hear what people who mm. might not be you know like the trained ear does change what you hear like mm. whether or not we want it. It's like an unconscious thing for you guys, probably. Even if you want to turn it off, you can't. I was about to say, yeah, it's like we're when we listen to music, or for me anyway, it's it's like ninety percent analyzing like what's happening, and then ten percent just enjoying the song. But um, I like, yeah. It's, I mean, you can let go. Yeah, like, probably a bit extreme. <laughs> not 90 and 10, but yeah, it is like you can't help it. It's like if you're a, if you're a uh, painter, you paint houses, and then you drive past all these houses, you're going to be looking at those paint jobs more than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, just, you're going to see a chip in the side of the house or a coat of paint yeah. that's not done just right. Yeah, and you're exactly. like, damn, that guy does not know what he's doing. They do not know how to cut it. I can tell you that yeah, much. Yeah. I saw Matt. You used to paint houses. Sam, did you as well? 
Were you guys painting together? I have painted the inside of a house before, but I am not a professional. No, Ben, 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 and, was, ben and Matt. Ben joined the, uh, the painter guy team. That was the, the paint team. The painter oh, guy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sam, you were at the youth center, right? Correct, yeah. It was interesting learning about the different jobs that you guys back that had back home in New Zealand before signing to 300. And I saw, Matt, you were talking a little bit about hearing your music come on the radio oh, while yeah. you were painting houses. To have woke up late, just come on blasting on New Zealand radio must have been crazy. But also, if I was in that position, I would have felt like, yo, get me the fuck out of painting these houses. <laughs> like, I should, I should be doing this full time. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I did enjoy painting. <laughs> I won't lie. We had a really great boss. He's like in his late 20s. He loves music. He was very lenient us getting time off to go and do gigs and stuff. And, you're good and he's very, yeah, he's very supportive of our music. But it was, it was definitely a, a buzz when the song... Because we knew when the song was going to be coming to radio. So we'd like, oh, we'd have the radio on really loud all day. And then when woke up late, I remember when it came on the first time, Ben, ben and I were just losing the plot. Like it's such a, such a cool feeling um, hearing your, your music on the radio. But it is definitely another thing, hearing it while you're working. I was picturing, have you guys ever seen the movie American Pie? Yeah. That scene where they're, I think it's American Pie 2 actually, where they're painting houses over the summer and then they're just blasting music and then one of them throws painting at the other one and then they all start going crazy and stuff and then they end up figuring out that lesbians live there and try to break in, which is completely unrelated. But the first part, the, <laughs> the first part of that scene, <laughs> the first part of that scene reminds me of, I imagine, what the emotion was like when you have your song playing on the radio while painting houses. Oh, yeah. I've got a, there's a video um, that I'll never delete. It's, a, it's me, like, stirring a paint pot while woke up late on the radio. And also, like, I remember one time we were on our, we call it Smoko. So we're, we're on our morning tea break. And Ben and I were sitting in a car just eating our food. And then the car was off. And I said to Ben, I've got a feeling woke up late is on the radio right now. Just out of nowhere, I just thought, oh, I just said it. Turned on the radio, bang, it's like slamming on ZM, one of the radios wow. back home. And then he flipped the channel to the edge, and then it was playing on there as well. <laughs> so at the same so time. It was on two at the same time, just by chance. That's crazy. Yeah, and those are like the only two really like big pop radio stations. Mm. Well, it only has, well, two main commercial top 40 radio stations. Compared to the states, which has about seven thousand. <laughs> so, how did you how did you get the start busking on the streets? How how did that first idea come into your head to take the music you were playing amongst each other? I know it was just two of you when you were starting out, but how did that kind of come into your minds as an option? Yeah, I think Sean had actually gone busking before with a couple of other people from jazz school. I think he went like once or twice. Well, he'd been, he'd been doing it like from a very young age as well. Like not specifically that style, but he'd done busking. He, he busked to eventually buy his first saxophone because mm. that was like his deal with his mum. She was like, if you can get half the money, I think from busking, 
playing whatever instrument he was playing at that time, then you can get a saxophone. Saxophones are expensive. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I rented one when I was in middle school for a few years, but I remember going into the store and seeing the the low end ones were like a thousand, and then you had crazy ones that were like eight or nine thousand. Yeah, yeah. So we Sean had went busking with a couple of other people from jazz school. I think they went away for it was a drummer and a Barry saxophone player, so they were like a little trio over summer. Yeah, and they went home. And Sean and I were still in Wellington. And so he, he asked me, hey, do you want to go busking? We just thought, oh, yeah, why not? And I think they were playing, so Sean and these other guys, they were playing more kind of like jazz-focused stuff. But I thought, well, it wasn't just me, but Sean and I thought, why don't we play some more like recognizable stuff and see what happens? And so we started, we started playing like that song, Riff Shop. Which it came yeah, out. by Macklemore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got that saxophone line in it. Da, 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 da. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's like an instant that just got people's attention straight away. And from there, we we realized we could actually make a bit of money if we kind of just put our twist on all of these recognizable lines that sax uh, that Sean was playing on the sax. So it, we actually made some pretty good coin because it was. Quite a new thing, I think, for Wellington to hear like a live drum kit and a saxophone. I'm talking to you guys from New York City right now, so there are experiences oh, yeah. all over the place. Washington Square Park is one of my one of my favorite parts to watch people. But like you were saying, when you're playing a beat that's so recognizable, you, it almost brings the crowd to you. You don't have to wait till people walk past people will come over and actively watch you and then the, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and so it's like exciting for people to hear a top 40 hit played by a few guys on the street but exactly then, and then we'd like kind of would go in between we, we wouldn't stop playing that's the thing it would be like a live dj almost just going through all of these different lines and stuff and we'd figure out ways how to so it wouldn't be like a song and then we stop and then we start a new one it'd be like a constant Mix. Kind of party, mix, party mix, yeah, and and they were doing it like at at night time, you know. So like starting maybe six, like six, six yeah. o'clock, kind of, and then going sometimes until like three or four o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, and I remember because they were the like Sean and Matt were busking for about three months before I started, three or four months before I started playing with them. And I bust for maybe, what, like two or three months after yeah. that. But I remember before I joined the band, like walking past and being like, what the hell is that? Like there's this <laughs> massive crowd of people. It must have been like one o'clock in the morning. And I was like, oh, what, what's that? And like walked through and I was like, oh, I know those guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was crazy, like full – party like sometimes like 150 200 more people all crowded crowded around like when they come out of clubs and bars and stuff that's when you don't make money when you've got a huge crowd and they're all really drunk the best the best crowd for making money is that that dinner crowd yeah by 8 p.m they're just dinner. before they get too buzzed up but yeah yeah they're feeling good the drunk people are just too busy having a good time and they they for basically just forget to give you money or they spent all of it already at the club. But it was a lot of fun. 
It feels like so long ago, but um, it wasn't really. That's the thing. It was five years ago, which is actually quite recent in the scheme of things, I feel. In the but scheme of the whole universe, five years is Five years is nothing. Do you ever just do it for fun? I know it would probably be hard to set up on a like a professional sounding scale with outside amplifiers, things like that. But have you guys, since signing to a major label, have you just done it for fun? We did a thing where there were these people in New Zealand, radio station hosts, like they were raising money for... What was the charity? Can you remember? It was like a children's charity. I think it might have been like for, um, you know, children's health or something like that. But they were raising money for it and they, for it, they had like locked themselves in a cage in a shopping mall for like a weekend or something like that. And we went and busked just outside, like in the mall, um, which was the, this was like, maybe a year ago. So that was the first time that we'd really done it for a long time. But even then it was it wasn't like us on our own volition going out and doing it. It was yeah. kind of in a partnership sense. But we have thrown the idea around kind of loosely about going busking again. I think it would be quite cool at some point to do it. Yeah. It just it's has to be right. Yeah, because I mean that's where it all started. But, but it, yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun. What are the most memorable or standout moments from when you were busking consistently? It could be positive. It could be negative. Something that sticks out that you would want to tell people years from now, like this is, uh, this is a good picture of what it was like when we were busking on the streets. There was some funny stuff that happened. Like, I mean, when you're on the main streets of Wellington at midnight, um, we've, had, we've seen a lot of people get chased by the police running past us. We've had people feeding you cheeseburgers. People feeding me while I'm drumming. <laughs> That's tough to, I imagine, eat and drum at the same time. She, she'd have to be very careful and methodical with the way that she's feeding you the burger so it doesn't disrupt the drumming. Yeah, it's actually easier than it sounds. You don't really use your mouth to, to play. And my mouth is normally open anyway doing um, my drum face. Oh, yeah. So she was just fitting it in there. The space was already there. <laughs> Most pelican birds, you just like the massive, you just feed them easy. Yeah. But um, in terms of other memories from busking, I remember just going home and tipping all of these coins onto my bedroom floor and my parents being so proud of me. <laughs> uh, making like, mom, money. I made it. We used to have like stashes of of money <laughs> like just places like sounds like we were real rich they were obviously yeah you're, you're like the pablo escobar busters yeah. like small, small small donations you're, you're, you're just burying your coins in the backyard <laughs> straight up they would like turn up turn up in the most like we'd lose money because we all or the three of us lived together in flat so we'd go busking and then we'd get back late at night and then we'd put it in a box and then we'd like put it somewhere and then we'd just lose it. And then maybe like three or four months later, we'd find it again, yeah. just randomly. All of these coins were like, oh, yeah, we had that. That's funny. So how did you get into playing your own originals, going from making covers on the street? And then I saw you started performing in bars when some of the bar owners, bar owners asked you, and then you were playing venues. How did you get into creating original music? I think after playing 
and that context for about a year or so, we started to feel the itch to write our own stuff. I think it's, it was just a natural thing. I, I don't think we saw ourselves playing only covers for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we um, we decided to we entered the audience thing, right? Yeah. What, first time. What What happened was we like we were actually individually in other bands as well, which were doing like original music. But then I guess we started to kind of get people taking notice of what we were doing, just playing covers. And then we were like, oh, well, we all want to write original music. We all kind of want to write similar stuff. And we're starting to get a bit of a following. We should do it with this. And then Sean's friend, who is like a videographer, offered to make a video of us playing because he'd seen videos, I think, of us busking. And so he was like, oh, I'll make a video for you. And we were like, well, we should probably, like, it should probably be an original song. It seems kind of silly to do, like, a video. I mean, obviously that, that happens, but... We we decided at that point in time that it'd be a good idea to do an original thing, um, video. So we wrote a song like in two days, I think. Yeah, yeah. Might have been two or three days, and I remember finessing the lyrics at like midnight the day before we were scheduled to shoot the video. Yeah, <laughs> it was hilarious. And so then we shot the video, and then we entered this thing called the audience. Oh, we recorded it, and then as part of like a when did we record that song? Did we record it with I the I think elements? we recorded it live in, in that video, and then we mixed it, and then we put it on the audience, which is like a competition back home where you can win funding to do to do a proper recording or a proper music video or something for yeah. one song. And it's vote, it's um, crowd voted. Vote, crowd voted. Mm-hmm. So we somehow won that after... Uh, a mammoth marketing campaign. <laughs> what was the uh, mammoth marketing campaign? Basically just like messaging all of our friends being like, can you vote for this thing? Yeah, posting on our page. That's the way to go. As soon as you drop something or any of my friends that have made anything creative, the first thing they always do is just text all of us, message us on Facebook. And it seriously does help because then you get dozens of people taking action on it right away and then they share it and then hopefully their friends share it and it kind of snowballs. I think that was the, that was actually the first strategy thing that our manager like kind of helped us with. He, he was like advising us kind of a little bit on it. But anyway. And yeah, so then we, we did that. The song came out. People started to like it. We recorded three more songs um, as part of a friend's like university project. Yeah. Yeah, that was and that was the first original song, which I hope you will never hear. <laughs> I'm sure someone will dig it out somewhere. It's online somewhere. I'm not saying where, but you can. <laughs> you could push that song on the podcast if you want, instead of the upcoming album. Oh, wow. <laughs> we'll link to it. We'll just fuck with you. I'm fucking you, you guys. <laughs> We've decided our... <laughs> <laughs> to fast forward a little bit, how did the whole connection with 300 Entertainment happen and Kevin Lyles reaching out to you guys? I think we released Woke Up Late at the end of 2017 and the song did really well on Shazam particularly. It was 
getting, it was all over New Zealand radio and people seemed to like the song. They were Shazamming it. And it went to number one on the New Zealand Shazam charts for about three months. And the thing with all the major labels, they've just got people looking at all these charts constantly, just going over all the data and stuff. So I think they found it, they found Woke Up Late through that and they reached out. And um, we had a few other people looking into it and uh, reaching out as well. But we really liked, um, after having a few conversations with 300, we really liked where the heads were at and their whole philosophy on on music. So we asked the A&R to actually come to New Zealand to meet us and hang out. She actually came to my house. <laughs> That's usually the opposite of how it goes. Usually the, the artist or the band goes to the A&R, especially that far away. That's what they were trying to do. They, were, they actually asked... Um, How'd you convince her? But then they were like, oh, no, nah, it's, it's actually cold over in New York. Why don't you come to New Zealand? <laughs> it's summer. Yeah. And our and A&R had actually been to New Zealand before. But she obviously yeah. was very keen to get on the plane. Shazam seems like a good place to... For, not only for the artists to be, but also for people trying to discover talent. Because if someone, if you're at the top of the Shazam charts, it means that A, your song is being played a lot, and B, that people may not know who you are, but they want to. It's almost in a way it's better than streams because it's like you're the top undiscovered talent on Shazam. And also, it's like the most real data. Like you can't, it requires you cannot fabricate like that there is like a physical action that you know someone's like this song is good i don't know what this song is well either the song is good or man this song's so annoying what is this <laughs> song but like and then they're like okay i i want to know enough to get my phone out of my pocket and open this app to like listen to it and figure out what it is you know like that's mm. that's the, such a real action so how does does that even work? It's so crazy. I guess they, they just have the algorithms and the, the technology down. It's, it's usually pretty accurate. There's some times where I'm out at a bar or something and I think there's too much white noise going on and it ends up picking it up. And there's like level, there's levels to wanting to know a song too. There, there are a bunch of times where I hear a song at a bar or somewhere I'm out just at a coffee shop or something and I hear it but I don't pull my phone out to Shazam it or try to figure out what it is. But then you hear a song and you think, oh, I need this song. Like, I, I need it right now. And then that's when you pull out the app. Yeah, I actually heard a song last night. We went to a show. Benny was playing. She's from New Zealand in LA over here. And um, just before she came on, a song by T Mango came on, like a disco track. Sounded so good, so I got the old Shazam out. It's only got three thousand Shazams, which is interesting, but it's so handy. It's like imagine. Yeah, what's the last thing I Shazam? Work up late. Who is this? <laughs> I love this song. Get the numbers up. Oh shit! I I played it. What were your early conversations like with Kevin Lyles at Three Hundred? Because when I was at Soho House, I actually spoke to him for less than a minute, but he seems so high energy. He gave that speech. What, I think it was before you guys played Woke Up Late for the second time. He asked if you're going to play another song. I think Sean was like, I mean, we didn't plan on it, but he was like, all right, Woke Up Late round two, here we go. And then you just started uh, playing, which is cool. What, what, what were the earlier conversations like 
with Kevin? We didn't, or most of our contact initially was through Allison, who's our A and R, and she's amazing. The first, one of my first like real interactions with Kevin was he called Sean one morning. I can't even remember. This oh, been a few days after we signed. Yeah, but it, it, like within the week after we'd signed, and Sean was living with me at the time, and Sean, like I hear this banging on the wall. And I was like, what the hell is that? And so I would like run through into Sean's room and Sean's like, Kevin called me, Kevin called me. And I was like, what? And he's like, Kevin, Kevin Lyles, he called me. And I was like, oh yeah, is he on the phone? And he's like, no, I hang up, I hung up. And I was like, what, what are you doing? Why did you hang up? Literally like the first time they were talking. And then he's like, I didn't mean to, I was asleep. And then he called me and then I went to pick up the phone, but I hung up and I was like, oh, no, no. But luckily he called back and he was just like, so, like, as you said, high energy. And he's like, Uh what were you thinking? What were you thinking? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, um, and then he sung the the bridge for Woke Up Like. Why is it so, so easy with the, he's like. He sung it to you guys on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And then. And then he was like, what were we thinking? Like, it's so good. It's so good. Like, it has that magic. It has that, like, that magic thing. And I was like, it's got like, that magic. Yeah. And he was like, you know, it feels magic. He's like, you guys need that. That's what you need. Like, and just hung up. And then, and then he was like, cool, have a good day. And then just hung up. I'm pretty sure. But he's, he's a pretty, pretty special guy. He's, he's done a lot of things. He definitely knows what he's doing. He seems like a funny, humble, charismatic guy yeah and he definitely has a a party side to him too i remember he the speech he was giving before you guys played he said like 1 a.m 2 a.m 4 a.m like who the hell remembers this shit anyway like, <laughs> let's just let's just have a good time <laughs> hilarious yeah he's one of a kind so we're, yeah. we're very lucky to be in partnership with him and we know that he's he really wants the best for us and we feel um yeah, we feel like it was a perfect match. Maybe hanging up on him actually worked to your advantage because then he thought, wow, that was a power move. These guys are going to be harder. These guys are going to be harder to get than I initially thought. Yeah. We have to be on the front foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, wow, I got I to gotta be on my toes with Drax Project. They just, they just hung up five seconds into a phone call. Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so you play, you have played a bunch of prestigious opening slots for artists like Ed Sheeran, Camilo Cabello, Lord. What is your mindset going into these shows as openers? Because it's it seems like it's a tough position to be in because you do have thousands of fans and they are also potential fans of yourself. Yeah, exactly. We we love opening slots. It's like our favorite thing to do. I think because the expectation, or up until this point anyway, and like I think in general, if you're an opening act, the expectation is obviously like there's not there's not as many people there who know you, and there's, they don't have this big expectation of what they like expect yeah. you to be, or how good they expect you to be, or what songs they expect you to play, or like any of that stuff. Like it's literally just a you got to blow these people out of the water, and like get them to like you, force them, I guess force them to like what you're doing. And so it's kind of like this cool challenge, like, and and I mean, like, it's also about opening up and having this experience with those people so that they feel like 
you know, they want to go away and listen to your music. But yeah, it's it's just a cool challenge and it's like really awesome when at the beginning you can tell like people are like, Oh, who are these guys? Yeah. What are they what are they doing? And then by the end of it they're all like waving their phones around and like yeah. jumping around and clapping and like it's just like it's cool to see that progression and, and be like Yeah. We we get to give that energy and, I and, think, and, yeah. and make that happen. We always try to have a we always have we try to have a high energy set that captures people's attention. And like Sean, you probably you might have seen some videos, but like Sean playing the saxophone in ways that you wouldn't expect someone to play the saxophone. That's <laughs> that's kind of um, what we do. Like, yeah, I remember watching him at at Soho House, and I've seen I've seen the more typical jazz concerts before. I played in the jazz band for a little bit when I was younger, but then I also went to some other more jazz oriented shows at the, the Tilla center in, in New York and other places like that. And usually you're sitting down playing the saxophone you stand up for a solo. Everyone claps very like, uh, like, uh, they're in tuxedos, like clapping very, uh, <laughs> just classically. Yeah. It's like very proper, very proper. And then, he whips out the saxophone and is jumping around, playing it, maintaining his breath, having a good time dancing around. So it's very cool to see him use the saxophone like that. And I think that's that goes all the way back to the busking thing. Like we, we're just having fun, and people seem to connect with that specific thing. Like the saxophone has always been like a secret weapon to a degree. Like I don't know, people people seem to love it, and we. We love making big saxophone drops, and we still play a lot of the stuff that we used to play busking. Like, I'm not sure if we played Crimea River at Soho House, but we you we, did, you did. So we did that big sax line, da 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 da. Yeah, da na na. Yeah, yeah, da na na. That we always do is we'll at least have one cover in the in our set, um, and they seem to work really well with opening slots as well. Because obviously when no one knows any of your music. Yeah, it seems like a, an exciting combination of a high pressure and low pressure dynamic because you have, if you're, say you're the opener, say you're Ed Sheeran, you have 40,000 people that paid to see you come on with the main slot. And so there's definitely that pressure of, okay, I have to make these fans and I have to make the time and the money worth it. But if you're the opener, you get an invite to open on tour and they're not necess- the people aren't necessarily there going for coming for you, but then you can convert them. And worst case scenario, someone doesn't like you. They got to see Ed Sheeran. Best case scenario, you get thousands of new fans, and they're gonna look you up after the show and continue to follow you. Yeah, and and as well, like we we also love our own shows, so that that's like a, a thing. It's just it is different, you mm-hmm. know, like. And it's cool being able to go out there and deliver and, and see people, you know, who have those expectations of, of what they think the show should be or, like, what they hope for it to be, you know, to have those expectations fulfilled and hopefully more, you know. That's, that's, that's just a different thing and it's, and it's also really cool. So, Are there any specific conversations or moments that you shared with other artists, either face-to-face or watching them perform artists that you've opened for where you can kind of take things that 
you learned from that night or, or that backstage conversation and then try to incorporate into your own artistry? Definitely. We had a, we had a good talk with, with Ed Sheeran um, after the three shows that we did. It was kind of more of a business-minded conversation, but he had some really good advice. It was um, very open. He was like, you know, if I could go back and do it again, this is what I would do. This is what I would change sort of yeah. stuff. What were the main gist of that conversation? What were the, what, the main advice he was sharing with you guys on the business end? It was kind of around like publishing and how to go about that side of stuff. The ownership of your music. Yeah, basically. Yeah. But just watching him perform, like one guy in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, how he could have people so zoned in on him and fully focused. And just realizing how many good songs he has as well. That was quite inspiring. Just He could play for two hours, hit after hit after hit, and the whole crowd are just singing. And he's still like, I think he's only a couple of years older than us. And he's got so many runs on the board. It was quite, yeah, it was inspiring for us just to see that, that output and how it connected with all of those people. Mm-hmm. And it definitely gave us a big taste for <laughs> playing in stadiums. Yeah, it's probably cool to to watch someone like that. Like you were saying, just one guy who's able to captivate a stadium full of people and be able to, you know, talk to him one on one, see his body language, certain movements he's doing on stage, how he's, you know, kind of playing with the crowd, getting them hyped up, backing off, certain things like that during the during the live performance, like how to really command a live performance which I know you guys know how to do as well from Soho House. We have definitely learned stuff from lots of different acts. Like when we, we opened for Brian McKnight, like about, well, it might have been oh, like wow. half a year before we did the Ed Sheeran stuff. And um, that was really cool. You know, his band is amazing. And like, obviously the musicianship there is, is amazing. And I guess he's kind of one of the originals. Like he he really has like a crafted show, which is interesting to see, you know, like doing specific, specific things at specific moments. And it's like understanding the reasoning for that and, and how that affects a, a overall life set is interesting. Mm-hmm. And watching his band play, like his band consisted of some of the best musicians in the world, especially Isaiah Sharkey, the guitarist. He plays for D'Angelo. He plays for D'Angelo and Ben is a massive fan of him, as we all are. And I don't think we realized Isaiah Isaiah Sharkey was actually on that tour until Ben walked past him in the like backstage. (laughs) And then he just freaked out. Like Isaiah Sharkey's in Wellington right now. And I just walked past him and I'm playing before him. And we ended up um, meeting him and he came out and watched a bit of our sound check. We're obviously super nervous. He seems like such a genuine guy too. Uh, not only the guys in his band, but also Ed Sheeran. And I feel like people have this almost like a, a misunderstanding of how people need to act to get to a certain level. And I've never actually met him, but just based on hearing other people's interactions who have talked to him and, and hearing things like from what you guys have said, it seems like he kind of defies, defies that logic where you have to be a dick or an asshole to get to the top. You can worry about other people and worry about yourself at the same time. And it, it's not like a zero-sum game. I think it's uh, like 
in modern times that's less and less like the being a dick thing is is okay you know i think people have started to uh, i it's obviously a, you know people enjoy interactions with nice people but like it, i think yeah, less and less in modern times, that's cool. People are just like, why are you... You're kind of gravitating towards more real people and real stuff, I feel. Yeah. The cult, like, cult is kind of hitting there. Um, but that was, yeah, that was super inspiring, just seeing how down to earth Ed and Camila were as well. Um, he is just like, a totally normal guy. Like, if you didn't know what he looked like, you'd, you'd have no idea that he's just like the biggest star in the world and he's... The way he talks, he's just so. He walked into our green room before we played on the first day, and he said, "Oh, hey guys, I'm Ed." Oh, hi, hi. <laughs> so, sorry, what did you say your name was? You said yeah, Ed. <laughs> and he apologized for the weather in in Auckland, New Zealand. And he said, "Yeah, thank you for coming on this tour. Um, let's go have a drink afterwards, and no worries, no worries." And yeah, he's just he's the man. He's he's the most humble guy I've ever met. It can't be a bad night when you're grabbing drinks with Ed Sheeran. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is the man. Every night he plays to like 80,000 people. That's just insane. It's probably harder nowadays to be a dick or an asshole type person to and get to the top because of social media. Because in the past, you could probably be more of a closeted asshole and, and get to a certain level. But then eventually people would find out when you get bigger and bigger. Now, if you do something to somebody, they can tweet about it and in two seconds it can go viral and then people form their own opinions about you. Yeah, for sure. We've heard stories like when people go up to some big acts and ask for photos or something and they kind of refuse. And just thinking like someone could, exactly how you said, just tweet, this person's an asshole, they didn't take a photo of me. Yeah. And it's like, that's your credibility that's taking a hit right there. So what we always, I mean, like, it does, we're nowhere near that kind of level. I mean, I think it's it's good that people are held accountable, you know, for their actions. Um, obviously, there are situational things, you know, like sometimes when we see someone and we're like, oh, man, I'd love to go and go up and get a photo with them. But it's like, oh, this is just not the right time, you know, like, having coffee with their girlfriend or, or partner or whoever, you know, like at a cafe. And I feel like going up and inter- interrupting that moment is kind of yeah. inappropriate. But in general, like, yeah, it is really good that people are held accountable. I think the key is just to be a nice person all the time. <laughs> you yeah. have no problems. Sometimes it's hard, though. Matt, I read that you got a cake thrown in your face one time. On your birthday, it's hard to be nice at, at a time like that, but I'm sure you figured a way to do it somehow. I think you kind of enjoyed it. Well, it could have been a lot worse thing thrown on my face. Like the cake is actually, actually quite not, a nice. It's actually, yeah, it's not That's too. True. It feels quite nice. It feels like a nice kind of cream on your face, just like rubbing in moisturizer, and it tastes good. But um, that was that was hilarious. Though. That was on my birthday. We were playing in a bar. The first bar we played coming off busking. So off busking, we got invited to play in this particular bar. It's on my birthday. We're playing away and um, the bar staff bring out a cake for me mid-song. They're kind of just standing there waiting for the song to finish. And I'm looking forward to that cake. I'm winding down the song like, let's wrap this up. And some drunk lady grabs the cake, (laughs) falls over, grabs the cake and hills it into my face (laughs) mid-song. 
But the song must go on. We we got to finish that song. Finish the song, and she is obviously swiftly escorted out of the premises. You're in the same class as Steve Aoki because he's both thrown cakes at people during concerts and received cakes in the face. <laughs> you should search the Steve Aoki cake in the face compilations if you haven't already. It's pretty hilarious. They, if I made it, that'll be the first point of conversation. They will, they will face each other. You're the cake guy. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so I heard that you guys as a band had an eye-open experience spending the weekend with another New Zealand band, 660. How did that weekend go down and, and what was so eye-opening about it or, or how did it kind of change your perception? We met them because we played like a slot to, just before them at a music festival or just after. I can't remember. We played like right next to them and they watched us um, play. In New Zealand, they are like massive yeah. Like by far the biggest band, like they're bigger than any other musical act from New Zealand or from overseas in New Zealand. So they're massive. But, um, but yeah, we played like alongside them and then they, I can't even remember how we ended up getting in contact with yeah, them specifically. They, we ended up having a, a little writing session with them in Auckland and up until then, our writing process had been pretty terrible. Like we were very slow with finishing things. We were way too nitpicky about every little detail, especially around production. But also like if something wasn't going right, we wouldn't necessarily just like let it go and, and like give it a rest, you know, mm. and, and just something fresh. We would, it, it was kind of a, we have to make this thing work yeah, situation. Yeah. But with them, we, there's, Six of us in a room, we all kind of just grab an instrument and we just go and we just have a jam and we're constantly we're recording the whole thing. And when good stuff with them, out. yeah, that they just t totally change our philosophy. Um, we just keep going until we got something good, we wouldn't stop and try to um, refine everything on the spot while we we're writing the song. Like with them, they it's like they yeah. just get the they they kind of taught us, you know, you got to get the song out, let the song like be a thing before you actually need to make it sound cool. Like, and and one of the things that they said to us um, specifically was like, if you can sit down and you can play a song on like piano and sing it all the way through, or you can play it on guitar and sing it all the way through, that's a good and, and like it sounds like a good song then that's really a good song you know you don't need all of the production stuff around it to write a song that's the stuff that kind of supports it and that that comes after that was quite a an eye-opening thing for us and and obviously being instrumentalists um that has been like you know adding all of the little parts to the song before maybe we've even written all the lyrics and melody is is it seems logical, but it's it's probably also tough to realize at times when you have all of these elements of production getting involved that in order to have a song that, you know, is, is very good, maybe even timeless, you should be able to play it on the guitar or the piano, which is vocals, like you were saying, and, and it should resonate with people on that level. And then you use the production to enhance it. Exactly. And like, um, that's how you know, people learn songs when they're like, oh, I like the song, I want to play it on guitar. You know, they don't go and sit down at their computer and like 
make all of the different sounds. Well, I mean, some people do, but 99% of people who want to play that song, you know, they're going to pick up a guitar or sit down at the piano and they will, and, and play the song and sing it through. So I think if it has that connection and it, and it can work on that level, then that's when you've got something that's like, yeah. Does that play into your creative process, especially for the upcoming album? Because you guys had an absolute smash with Woke Up Late that ended up having Haley Steinfeld then hop on it. And the music video was incredible as well. But then with along with that also comes uh, pressure to create the, the vibes and kind of uh, the aesthetic that attracted people towards Woke Up Late and the piece of art that you created. So I'm sure that that weekend with 660 and that change in mindset can help ease some of the pressure and just let things flow more easily. I mean, to, if I'm honest as well, like they were some of the people who encouraged us to finish Woke Up Late. Like we we were doing some work in the studio and they just happened, they're working, they were working with the producer who we were working with as well and they were in the same city and, and they came along to the session and they were like, oh, actually like um, we were playing some stuff and then we played Woke Up Late and they were like, oh, you should definitely finish that song <laughs> like that's a really good song so I mean, it's it's cool that they encourage us to do that but like I guess there is always like pressure <laughs> when you have something good to follow it up with something good we're just like in the space of writing music that we think is as good as we can write you know like at the end of the day that's all that you can do and like, yeah. and I think yeah, you're right. Like that session with them and, and trying to do the whole thing of like writing a song instead of writing parts and, and piecing this all together. Like it definitely has helped. And some of the people that we're working with, you know, I think it helps us to connect with them and um, move things forward in sessions, you know, like when we're working with other writers and, and producers and stuff, like being able to see the song as the song at, does really help in those contexts so and and it helps to strip away all the peripheral things i was listening to an interesting interview recently on i think it was with the new york times it was with lil nas x and young keo who made old town road and they were talking about how they were thinking of writing lyrics in a song that would be shareable on social media. So for example, Lil Nas was saying the line horses in the back when he made that line. It wasn't necessarily him trying to be super creative or artsy. He just pictured, you know, a bunch of people sharing it as an Instagram caption or making all these memes or or gifts online for songs and, and having people share it. Do you ever think about how your music will transition to the technology aspect or be shared by people on Twitter, Instagram, other platforms like that? Yeah. I think content-wise, we are aware of, we're aware certainly of dating our music with techno- technological like if references. You get, yeah, if you get too specific. If you get real specific about that sort of stuff, then it can be kind of, you know, like you don't necessarily well, – there's a song, I can't remember, there's there's a song which I've heard and I can't actually remember which one it is, but they talk about getting a, a new microwave. I think it might be a Dire Straits song. 
And uh, it's like, that's cool in that context because the song did, did really well, but I think in some situations it, yeah. it can be kind of detrimental. Um, I don't think we write for memes or anything. We're not yeah. like specifically, this is, gonna be, this is a quirky phrase that we've come up with. Yeah. But let's hope that it sticks. Because I think if you try too hard to do that stuff, it doesn't actually work. It's also if you try too hard to write the perfect song, like it, it just never seems to work. Like that old town road thing. Yeah, that, it seems like that song was a combination of, of both the actual music, but then also the landscape that we live in, the, the way it was able to blow up with things like TikTok and, and Twitter and how people were doing the, the cowboy dance to it. Some of, the, some of these things that they couldn't have foreseen, even looking back on it, you can kind of connect the dots and, and maybe look at it from a different perspective and say, okay, this led to this, which led to that. But when they were making it in the moment, I'm sure they didn't see it blowing up in the way that it did. Some, yeah, some of that stuff is like impossible to project. Yeah, it's like the perfect storm. Yeah, yeah. I guess as well, like we, at the moment at least, our writing style is kind of more story-based. Like we... We at least either we're trying to portray like a specific feeling, and that um, is kind of supported by like a storyline, or it is literally a storyline. You know, like "Woke Up Late" is a story. It's if you listen to the lyrics through, then you can picture each moment. You know, mm. like in the progression of the story linearly. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And I think telling a story that people can connect to is like a universal thing. Obviously in modern culture, like memes and internet references and stuff like that, that is a story. That is how people tell stories of their lives at the moment. Um, or at least it's a way of doing that. But yeah, I guess it's just a different way of telling a story and connecting it to those things is, is part of it. And speaking of storytelling, I wanted to end off with some advice that I saw you guys got from Mike Posner. And you said he told you guys to write as many songs as you can and work with similar people, not to change it up too much. And I've been a fan of Mike Posner since I was in college. And he's definitely went through a transition of, of adjusting to fame and becoming more spiritual. But he's always been a guy that puts storytelling first and knows how to tell a story. He's even had the the poetry albums where he's just, you know, saying things over soundscape and, and, and it's really cool like that. But something in that vein seems like that's the, the best type of advice you can give because you're not really telling an artist or a creative, you know, do something this way. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. It's more like, you know, just like do, do however you're going to do it you're going to figure that process out by just doing it more and doing it more than everyone else. And just whether it sucks to write a song that day or it feels good to write a song or maybe somewhere in between, the most important part is just sitting down and writing whatever comes out. Because we've, we've made a lot of songs out of bad ideas from other songs that just didn't work in that context. So for example, well, not bad ideas, but um, things that didn't work. Things that didn't work. So the, the bridge from Woke Up Late, 
like the the lyrics that Kevin called Sean up about and started singing like this is so good how did you come up with this that whole part is actually like a little snippet from a thing that Sam had made a year earlier from another song that just kind of just faded into oblivion but if we hadn't have written that we wouldn't have had that bridge and woke up late and sometimes you just like have these things where you're like wow that you know at the at the end of the day it's the same four people that are writing the music or like obviously we're working with other people now but the core of us it's the same four people it's the same four brains you know something from two years ago just because it didn't work then doesn't mm. mean that it can't work with something else that we did we're still creating things and and contextually it's actually quite likely that yeah. we might pick up other things like from the pool of stuff that mm. we have that reminds me of a book i'm reading right now it's called bird by bird by Anne lamott and she uses the book as an analogy between writing and life i think it's good for anything any creative pursuit like podcasting or making music painting whatever but early on, I'm about halfway through right now, but early on, she preaches writing really shitty first drafts. She's a huge fan of shit first drafts and, and first versions of stuff. And she says that oftentimes, you know, it's more important to just set out the time of day. If, if you're a writer and you want to write, you know, at two, between 2 and 5 p.m. every day, just sit down and write. And sometimes, or most of the time, the, the first effort to do something is going to be complete shit. And you might write four pages of garbage, but there's going to be one paragraph or a sentence in there somewhere that you're going to read the next morning and be like, hey, maybe there's something there. This isn't a complete waste. And you use it as part of something else or you build an entire story or article or song off of another thing that came out of that terrible first draft. That's happened so many times with us and music. It's also a process of elimination. Like if you, you can write a bad song, and it's like, oh, at least we know that doesn't work. Let's try something else. Like you can look that way. You can flip it from a negative to a positive. Yes, she, she. It's funny you say that because she talks about that too. Saying, you know, if you feel like you're going to write something that's shit, then write like aim make make something bad. Like say, all right, I'm gonna write the shittiest two paragraphs in my life and just let it out and see what gets yeah. down. And a lot of times that will lead to something cool or innovative or creative that you weren't even thinking of. I think that is very true as well. Like in the situation of if something comes to you, like if you have like a moment where you're like, oh, that's that thing. Sitting down and taking the time to let that thing come out is important, you know, because it may never come back to you Mm -hmm. and it might be the greatest song, but like you or the greatest piece of art that you've ever created so i think that there's definitely something to say for um letting spontaneity and spontaneous energy like i don't know take its path or whatever you want to call it that's why voice voice recorder is the best thing to happen to modern music yeah (laughs) your phone is like the the voice recorder on the phone yeah the best tool for songwriting (laughs) yeah because you could you basically have this this pocket vessel of potential ideas that you can yeah. take with you wherever you go, whether you're at, you know, 4am yeah. drinking with buddies somewhere or you wake up in the morning, it's, it's right there mm. at all times. Yeah. We're pretty lucky to live in this current time. I feel. Yeah. It's, it seems like there's a miss 
perception. And I definitely had this misperception in the past before I started writing and podcasting consistently where I thought that good ideas just spew out of you like a lightning bolt, like something hits you and then it just flows all the time. And that's how good writers write and good musicians make music and, you know, good artists craft things. But oftentimes I feel myself making things that doesn't always feel good in the moment. I might feel frustrated, but it evolves over time with every session that you sit through. And it's cool to hear other artists and creators talk about the same process because it reinforces your drive to do it because you don't think you're like the one outcast that just isn't good at it. You realize other people are going through the same shit. And what we've realized on myself is you hear these amazing albums coming out from all these people, timeless albums. Before, there would have been a hundred more songs that didn't make the cut, hundred other songs that didn't make it into that final 10. So it's not like, well, maybe sometimes people do come up with the 10 songs in a row, but yeah, you've got to go through, you've got to wade through all of that crap to get to the, to the gold. Apparently one person that I've heard who did that was, who, sorry, did the opposite. Um, who literally took like the first few songs, like was Bruno Mars when he wrote 24 Karat Magic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like uh, apparently that was like he basically went into the studio every day and he was like, cool, these are the 12 songs that we're doing. This is like, I mean, maybe he, maybe he wrote a hundred more before that. I don't, I don't know, but like he was very specifically like, these are the ones that we're doing. This is, we're going to make these work. He's a genius. Like, yeah, that's definitely the outlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that paid up. yeah, that really worked. <laughs> the last question I had, you guys can answer separately. So since you've had the the opportunity to go out and grab drinks with artists and creatives like Ed Sheeran, who would you want to grab a full dinner with? It could be any type of creator that's alive today. It doesn't have to necessarily be music. It could be an author, could be a a writer, philosopher, someone that you would want to just pick their brain for a couple hours at dinner. And why would you pick that person? That's such a hard question. Give me one second. Hmm. Take your time. Man, I reckon going to dinner with the Coen brothers would be pretty amazing. I think like those guys, I, 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 what I feel like I could learn from them would be just about creating like the, such a specific or having a very specific outlook on on what you want to create you know having a very clear vision because obviously i mean they're brothers but um working so so closely in tandem with each other to create like such a specific piece of or such specific pieces of art you know in their in their films like i, I think that would be quite an interesting insight yeah, that's such a rare combo too. A tandem of brother filmmakers, people that are in the same immediate family. I just want to know how do you guys not fucking kill each other? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and I mean, like, essentially, we are kind of living in a similar situation with the four of us. Like, all yeah, for you guys too. There's probably a lot of carryover from that conversation. Like, how how does that dynamic work? Where you're going back and forth on ideas. What are the boundaries? What what are the ways that you can figure things out? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. For me, I think maybe Pharrell would be pretty cool to have a, have a sit-down dinner with just because he's, yeah. he's 
Stay, where do you buy your hat? He's, yeah, he stayed relevant, but he's been ahead of the times with music the whole time. So, and he's, yeah, he's just a visionary. And yeah, I'd love to pick his brain on everything music. Like, he's, you don't realize like he's behind a lot of the, a lot more of the smash hits that, um, that then you realize over the last, what, 15 years. That'd be quite cool. And he's like, he's like cross genre a lot and he knows, um, he knows how it all works. So, yeah, I think that'd be quite cool. We can chat with Pharrell. And he has such a, a longevity. He's outlasted so many of his peers from the late 90s, early 2000s, just being able to evolve and kind of not ride the current waves, but figure out what people like and, and what it's doing to the culture and then figure out ways to incorporate that into his own creative pursuits, whatever it is. I, I feel like he's definitely like fashion, style, music, yeah, yeah. design. He he's, has a knack for figuring out like what's hot, like what people like. Yeah, for sure. I feel like you're you're answering these questions way better than us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've definitely hit the nail on the head. That's for sure. He's like, he's just the head of, yeah, he's just leading it's the way. It's because it's cause Pharrell's sitting right next to me. He's, he's oh. telling me. <laughs> you got the link? Well, yeah, I got the I got the inside scoop. He's right here. My man. <laughs> I promise if I ever get Pharrell on the podcast, I will have you guys on at the same time. Hopefully in person. I'd love that. <laughs> great. Or the Coen brothers. I would love either of them. Yeah. <laughs> Why not all, all three? Exactly. I want to thank you guys again for your time. I really do appreciate it. I enjoy I enjoy all these conversations, but I I really do. Uh, I really am grateful because it's kind of almost like a therapy session sometimes getting a talk with all these different artists and creatives. And I love being able to pick your guys' brains. And I know the upcoming music is going to be a smash. I look forward to seeing you guys again really soon. And I'll, I'll stay in touch with Victoria and the team about when we drop the podcast. And I'll send you guys the links and everything. Thanks so Thanks, much, man. man. That was actually, awesome. that was really fun. That time yeah. went super quick. I know. I was, uh, I was looking, I, I lost track of the top. It was supposed to be like 45 minutes or an hour. And I was like, oh, fuck, I should, should probably stop. But I'll, de- I'll definitely have you guys on again for sure. I'm sure we could keep going for another couple hours. Definitely. Yeah. Fantastic questions as well. That was really, really fun. Yeah, thanks thanks thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cool. Have a good day. You too. Have, have a good one, guys. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good, bro. Good See, ya. See ya. Bye. Bye, Victoria. See you, Vic. She can't hear me. Oh, bye. <laughs> no, it's all good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode with Drax Project. You can listen to their latest releases right now by searching Drax Project wherever you listen to music or by visiting the links in the description of this podcast. And if you love this podcast, tell your friend, tell your mother, Subscribe on iTunes, leave an eight-star rating and a comment. It really does help more people find out about Augzoro. As a completely independent podcast, we rely on you, the listeners, to help spread the word. Thank you. Until next time.